All right. Let's talk a little bit about Astrophil and Stella, uh, Sir Philip Sidney's sonnet sequence. These poems were written in the 1580s, though they weren't published until the 1590s. When they were published, they started a big uh, fad for sonnet sequences. Uh, They were all the rage for a while. Uh, But they were originally written in manuscript form, and this is true of most courtly poetry in the Renaissance. Uh, This is true of Wyatt and Surrey as well. Uh, They weren't published in books. They were circulated in manuscript form. So the poet would write out the poems and send them to friends, and the friends would send them on or copy them and send them to other friends. And in the aristocratic circles, this was how poems were published, not in a a book, but as a a manuscript. It was very kind of uh, intimate, and you were in the know and in the inner circle if you got these poems. Uh, and Sydney's sonnets, uh, people have long speculated, we can't prove, but it seems very likely that the Stella in Astrophil and Stella, his beloved, uh, is the, the woman that he was deeply in love with, uh, Penelope Devereux, who married another man. She married Lord Robert Rich and became Penelope Rich. And Sydney also married, and, but he still... The, the theory goes, uh, had a deep love for Penelope, and she became the uh, the fictionalized Stella in these poems. And of course, the title, uh, Astrophil, is um, Greek for star lover. Stella is Latin for star, so star lover and star. They go together, and yet they don't quite, because one is Greek and one is Latin. Uh, so e- even the the wittiness of the title suggests something of the unrequited love in uh, in the sonnet sequence. So let's start at the very beginning with sonnet one. Now this is an unusual sonnet because it has a six-beat line instead of a five-beat. It's iambic, but it's iambic uh, with six beats instead of, uh, it's, they're called alexandrines, uh, six beats instead of five. It says, loving in truth, and fain in verse my love to show, that the dear she might take some pleasure from my pain. Pleasure might cause her read, and reading make her know. Knowledge might pity win, and pity grace obtain. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe, studying inventions fine, her wits to entertain. Oft turning others' leaves to see if thence would flow some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburned brain. But words came halting forth, wanting invention stay. Invention, nature's child, fled step down steadies, studies blows. The others that and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. Thus great with child to speak, and helpless in my throes, biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite. Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. All right, so this is how uh, Sidney frames the beginning of this sonnet sequence. And he actually does it as kind of a sequence. He, he's in love. He wants to show his love. Why? So that the, the his beloved will take some pleasure from his Uh, pain. And then we see the sequence. Pleasure. If she likes it, she's going to read them. If she reads them, then she'll know how I feel. If she knows how I feel, she'll feel pity for me. And if she pities me, I will obtain grace. 
I, I suppose, her love. So to do that, he's looking for the right words. How is he going to find that? And what he looks for is, he says, turning others' leaves. That's the leaves of a book, right? So he's, he's reading up on other, you know, he's reading Petrarch and other sonnets. You find some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburned brain. But, and here we get that turn, uh, this is a, a, uh, a Petrarchan-style sonnet. This is, but... Words came halting forth. He's—they're not. He's not getting the words. Aren't flowing the way that they did, and all those other things he reads. And he says, "Invention, invention is imagination. We would call it, uh, which is nature's child. Fled stepdame studies blows." So here the image is that uh, study is like a, a, a school marm with, you know, beating the students and the, the children don't like to go to school. Uh, they're, they're fleeing from stepdame study. And says, and others' feet still seem but strangers in my way. Uh, feet there is a nice little pun. Uh, it, 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 he's talking about poetic feet and also in the, the metaphor, the, uh, in the footsteps of other people. It goes with both. And then this image, great with child to speak. It's a very interesting image for a, a male poet to be writing. He's great with child. He's pregnant. He's got these poems that, you know, want to come out of him, but can't helpless in my throat. It's like he's trying to give birth and is biting my truant pen. Uh, it, now, that's actually what you know, pregnant women at this time would do. They did not have uh, uh, drugs to give them, so they would give them a stick to bite down on uh, in the throes of labor. He's doing the same thing here, but notice it's his truant pen. Truant picks up the image of, of the, the child being a truant, running away from stepdame study. Um, and then the answer comes, Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. So the idea is stop all that study and everything and just speak from the heart. Now, this is something that poets have said since poets have been saying anything. But as we'll see, uh, it, it's in a way it's kind of ironic because, first of all, this is a a fictional character. You know, Astrophil and Stella aren't real people. They may be thinly disguised uh Stand-ins for Sidney and Penelope, but they're they're not real people, and his poems are full of references to other people's lines and they're uh, turning others' leaves, uh, studying other other poems. Uh, but it's very interesting that he starts off with what what you ought to do is stop worrying about all that and just just, just look in thy heart and write. So then we get the second sonnet. Uh, it says, not at first sight, nor with a dribbed shot, love gave the wound which, while I breathe, will bleed. But Knownworth did in mine of time proceed, till by degrees it had full conquest got. So he's saying, the, the love I feel was not love at first sight. I didn't see her and hear bells and everything. It, it took time. And that image of in mine of time, he's using the... the common Petrarchan image of, of love is war. Here, when you would besiege a castle, you would dig mines underneath the walls of the castle so they would collapse. Now, that took a long, long time. It wasn't a quick uh, assault. So, in mine of time, this proceeded. That I saw and liked. I liked, but loved not. I loved, but straight did not what love decreed. 
At length, to love's decrees, I, forced, agreed, yet with repining at so partial lot. So he's kind of drug, kicking and screaming. I saw and I liked, yeah, but I didn't love her. Well, then I loved, but I didn't do what love uh, wanted me to. Uh, finally, love forced me to, and yet I was always complaining about how, how little payback I was getting. Now, and here's the turn, you know, that ninth line is so often in, in these Petrarchan sonnets is a turn. Now, even that footstep of lost liberty is gone. So even the, the uh, every shred of his freedom is gone. He's been enslaved. Now, remember, that's another Petrarchan conceit. Love is slavery. Uh, even that footstep of lost liberty is gone. And now, like slave-born Muscovite, I call it praise to suffer tyranny. And now, employ the remnant of my wit to make myself believe that all is well, while with a feeling skill I paint my hell. So the only thing that he can do, he's he's become slowly but thoroughly and now completely entrapped in love, and the only thing he has uh, to uh, in in recompense is his ability to to paint his hell with his feeling skill. That is his poetic skill, at least allows him to articulate this, even though he's completely enslaved by it. Um, let's look at Sonnet Six. Some lovers speak when they their muses entertain of hopes begot by fear, of what not what desires, of force of heavenly beams infusing hellish pain, of living deaths, dear wounds, fair storms, and freezing fires. Now this is a catalogue of those Petrarchan conceits. And he's talking about that's you know, some Petrarchan uh, uh, sonneteers talk about that. Some one, his song in Jove and Jove's strange tales attires, broidered with bulls and swans, powdered with golden rain. Now he's talking about Ovid, who wrote the, the Metamorphoses. He's a, Ovid was a Latin poet, uh, and these are all of the disguises, you know, the bulls and swans and golden rain, were disguises that Jove took on so that he could be with mortal women. Another humbler wit to shepherd's pipe retires, yet hiding royal blood full oft in rural vein. Now he's talking about pastoral poetry, the tradition of, of uh, poetry about shepherds. And again, it's kind of cliched, you know, the, the, the poor shepherd turns out to have royal blood, though he doesn't know it. That's another kind of poetry. To some, a sweet plaint, a sweetest style affords, while tears pour out his ink and sighs breathe out his words, his paper pale despair and pain his pen doth move. Now he's talking about Dante. Uh, Dante's La Vita Nuova was often called uh, the, the founder of the sweet style, and he's playing on that word sweetest plaint, sweetest style. Um, and look at that in line 11, the kind of the play of alliteration there, with paper pale despair and pain his pen doth move. Those hard P's and D's all in that line. It says, I can speak what I feel and feel as much as they, but think that all the map of my state I display when trembling voice brings forth that I do Stella love. 
All right, so now he's here's how he's going to top these poets. Right, he can he feels just as deeply as any of us as Petrarch or Ovid or Dante or the pastoral poets, and um, he's going. But he can say more than all of them have said all together by the simple words, "I do Stella love." All right, so and notice how often Stella comes in as the the, the center point of these poems. Now, notice that this poem does not fit. A, a kind of a it, it's a Petrarchan sonnet. It's got that rhyme scheme. It's got the octave and the sestet, but it doesn't fit a Petrarchan organization. That is, it's not the first eight lines, and then we have a turn, and the the last six lines reply to it. So it starts off. It's got four lines on Petrarch, two lines on Ovid, two lines on Pastoral, three lines on Dante, and then three lines on uh, uh, Sidney's own poetry. Uh, that's very often what happens in a sonnet, it has different levels and different forms and different kinds of organization that don't always meet up with each other. And that's what partly what makes it such an energetic form. If it always just kind of in rigid lockstep fit the uh, Petrarchan model of eight lines, six lines, it would get pretty boring after a while. So uh, Sidney finds ways to vary that uh, um, that organization in the sonnet. All right, let's look at uh, Sonnet 15. You that do search for every purling spring which from the ribs of old Parnassus flows and every flower not sweet perhaps which grows nor near thereabout into your posy ring. You that do dictionaries method bring into your rhymes running and rattling rows. You that poor Petrarch's long-deceased woes with newborn sighs and dezened wit do sing. You take wrong ways. These far-fet helps be such as do beray a want of inward touch. And sure, at length, stolen goods do come to light. But if, both for your love and skill, your name you seek to nurse at fullest breast of fame, Stella behold, and then begin to indict. All right, now here's another poem, and notice how many of these poems are very self-consciously talking about the art of writing poetry. That's as much a theme in, in Sydney sonnets as love is, though they're often, in fact, almost always connected. So here is a Petrarchan sonnet that kind of fits the regular uh, uh, organization. The first nine lines or just talking about the way most people write poetry. And then he says, you're doing the wrong thing, I'll tell you how to do it right. So you and the, the Purling Springs, Old Parnassus, that's the uh, uh, supposed to be a, a inspiration for poets, the flowers of rhetoric, you know, the flowers that you see. Um, you do a dictionary method, you know, you're looking up your rhymes, you're getting everything, you're, you're looking to Petrarch, all of this. It says, you take the wrong ways. Uh, you like the inward touch. This is from that very beginning sonnet. Um, uh, Fool said my uh, muse to me, look in thy heart and write. So you're looking in, in the wrong place. You've got to look inside. And the best way to make your great poem is just to look at Stella and she'll inspire you. Um, so again, we keep, uh, keep, it all keeps coming back to Stella. She's the kind of the central uh, inspiration and muse for everything in the poems. Um, let's look at sonnet 20 fly fly my friends I have my death wound 
fly. See there that boy, that murdering boy, I say, who like a thief hid in the in dark bush doth lie till bloody bullet get him wrongful prey. Now he's talking about Cupid, right? Cupid is the, the boy with the arrows who has been hiding and, and, and has wounded him. So tyrant he no fitter place could spy, nor so fair level in so secret stay, as that sweet black which veils the heavenly eye, there himself with his shot he close doth lay. Now that sweet black is the the black of Stella's eyes. She's several times it talks about her black eyes, and in one poem he makes much of the fact that th- this bright beauty has black eyes. Um, poor passenger or passerby, pass now thereby, I did, and stayed pleased with the prospect of the place, while the black hue from me the bad guest hid. So he's, he passes by Stella, he's, and this is kind of an analogy. It's like in, in uh, uh, it's like a passerby and the hunter, but he's passing by Stella, seeing her black eyes, pleased with them, not realizing that they have love's power, Cupid's arrows in them. It says, but straight I saw motions of lightning grace, and then described the glittering of his dart. But ere I could fly thence. It pierced my heart. Uh, now notice that this doesn't fit with some things we've read in some of the other poems, where he said, I didn't fall in love with her at first sight. And here it's it's sounding like he did. He sees Stella, the power of her eyes pierces him, uh, Cupid's arrows shooting out from her eyes. Um, and notice, too, this is the, the power of the beloved's gaze was a Petrarchan conceit. Obviously, the the metaphor of Cupid is something that was done back in ancient Rome. So he's using all the techniques he disparages. He's using the the, the dictionary method. He's looking at uh, at Petrarch's uh, long deceased woes, as he calls them in Sonnet Fifteen. Uh, but he's using them to embody his own genuine emotions and feelings. Let's look at um, next at Sonnet 31. With how sad steps, O moon, thou climbst the skies, how silently and with how wan a face, what may it be that even in heavenly place that busy archer his sharp arrows tries. Sure, if that long with love acquainted eyes can judge of love, thou feel'st a lover's case. I read it in thy looks, thy languished grace, to me that feel the like, thy state decries. Then, even of fellowship, O moon, tell me, is constant love deemed there but want of wit? Are beauties there as proud as here they be? Do they above love to be loved, and yet those lovers scorn who that love does? Uh, that, let me start that again. Do they above love to be loved, and yet those lovers scorn whom that love doth possess? Do they call virtue there ungratefulness? All right. So here he's he's seeing the moon. Now the moon is a long. Uh, a symbol of of love, you know, moonlight is very romantic, and he sees well. Love, your your, your pale face, 
Um, you, you, you must have been hit by love. I can, I can sympathize. I've been, uh, uh, I'm lovesick too, and I can tell the signs in you. So he says, well, I have some questions for you, Moon. And this does kind of follow into, into the uh, octave and sestet uh, organization. Uh, the, the first eight lines are all of these observations he makes, and the, the sestet are the questions that he asks the Moon. And he's asking if if love is viewed the same way up in the heavens as it is on the earth. And part of the the idea behind this poem is an idea that was current in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, that the universe was perfect in the sphere from the moon and above. So on the earth, as the, the sublunar, the sublunary world was a fallen, imperfect world. But the heavens up beyond that were perfect. So he's asking, well, how are things, how is love treated up there in the heavens where things are perfect? Is constant love there deemed but want of wit? They call people stupid who are actually, you know, true to their love. Uh, are the beauties proud there? Are the, the people, the, the beautiful beloveds, uh, too proud to pay attention to the men who love them? Um, do they, you know, scorn? You know, they they say that they uh, approve of love, but they scorn those who actually do the loving. And that final line is kind of nicely ambiguous. Do they call virtue there ungratefulness? Um, and as the footnote tells you, you can see that either as describing the, the lover or the beloved. Um, are they calling the ungratefulness of the beloved a, uh, a virtue, the fact that she won't repay his love? Or you can say is the, is the lover's virtue, his fidelity, is considered, you know, gauche and uh, not, uh, not proper in heaven. Uh, so this is a fairly bitter poem about love. Uh, many of them are very idealistic. Uh, but again, in a sonnet sequence, you're not trying to tell a consistent narrative story. You're just embodying kind of moments of feeling. And sometimes he feels like this this way. Sometimes he feels the other way. Uh, there's, uh, there's no um, uh, logic oftentimes from one poem to another. Now, if you turn to Sonnet 37, this is another one of the um, kind, of, kind of cliches of Petrarchan sonnets that Sidney is indulging here. This is a poem that is really punning on the name of his beloved. And he says, I must a riddle tell. And he, he starts, uh, towards Aurora's court, a nymph doth dwell, rich in all beauties, which man's eyes can see. Beauty so far from reach of words that we abase her praise, saying she doth excel. Rich in the treasure of deserved renown, rich in the riches of a royal heart, rich in those gifts which give the eternal crown, who, though most rich in these and every part, which makes the, pa the patents of true worldly bliss, hath no misfortune but that rich she is. And the idea is that this is, again, about Penelope Rich, uh, who is uh, rich in all of these external ways. She married a rich man named Rich, uh, but her, own, her misfortune is that she is Mrs. Rich. She's not Mrs. Sidney. Uh, so that's, you know, a typical 
uh, Petrarchan play on the the name of the beloved. Um, look at, at Sonnet thirty nine. This is another very stereotypical lament where the the lover uh, is love sick. People aren't able to sleep, and so here he is calling on sleep. Come sleep, O oh sleep, the certain knot of peace, the baiting place of wit, the balm of woe, the poor man's wealth, the prisoner's release, the indifferent judge between the high and low. With shields of proof, shield me from out of the priests. Of these fierce darts, despair at me doth throw. O make in me those civil wars to cease. I will good tribute pay if thou do so. Take thou of me smooth pillows, sweetest bed, a chamber deaf to noise and blind to light, a rosy garland and a weary head. And if these things, as being thine by right, move not thy heavy grace, thou shalt in me, livelier than elsewhere, Stella's image see. So, he can't get to sleep, and he's praising sleep as you know it's it's the the great equalizer, judging not judging between high and low. Yeah, even a prisoner gets release, even a poor man is wealthy in his sleep. Uh, but these fierce darts of despair do throw at him, and that that idea of despair. There's a theological dimension to the word despair that we don't usually think of in the 21st century. Uh, but despair was the idea. Uh, in theology, that you were beyond redemption, that there was no hope for you at all. And so he's fe- that's how he's feeling about his love now. Um, and he's going to do everything he can to get a good night's sleep here, right? You know, smooth pillows, sweet bed, uh, the, the soundproof chamber, no lights on. Um, and the f- notice what the final bribe he has to get sleep to come to him is that thou shalt see in me livelier than elsewhere livelier than elsewhere Stella's image see uh, so he's going when he is asleep he's going to dream about Stella and so sleep will get to see you know technicolor images of Stella in his dreams better than they could anywhere else um, so that's even in his sleep he can't escape thinking about uh, Stella All right, um, let's look at Sonnet 45. Stella oft sees the very face of woe painted in my beclouded stormy face, but cannot skill to pity my disgrace, not though thereof the cause herself she know. Yet hearing late a fable, which did show of lovers never known a grievous case, pity thereof get in her breast such place that from the sea derived tears spring did flow. Alas, if fancy, drawn by imaged things, though false, yet with free scope more grace doth breed than servants rack where new doubts harbor brings, then think, my dear, that you and me do read of lover's ruin some sad tragedy. I am not I. Pity the tale of me. All right. Now this is you know, very often in a sonnet, it, it will take kind of a, a little uh, idea and play it out in this way, uh, kind of in, in, in a witty fashion. So it starts off, Stella, Stella knows how woeful I am, 
but even, and she knows she knows why I'm feeling so bad. It's because she doesn't return my love, and but she won't pity me. And yet, in the uh, starting on line five, she heard this story, this fable about love, and she felt so much pity that she started crying and says, well, how is fantasy, just imaginations of things, can get more uh, emotion from her than the real live human being that she knows who is, is in a desperate case? And so he says, well, okay, think of it this way. Uh, don't think of me as a person. Think of me as a story. Think in me uh, that you read, in me you do read of lovers ruin some sad tragedy. I am not I. Pity the tale of me. So he's he's talking in a very witty way about the the way that he has fictionalized his real feelings here. Uh, the, the real feelings you may not be able to respond to, but the fictionalized ones you can. Um, and this this idea is very uh, very strong in the Renaissance. Uh, we'll, we'll see in Hamlet that this idea that uh, Hamlet comes up with this idea too that just seeing the, the the representation of something, seeing something in a play, can cause an emotional response that will show us the truth. And that's what Sidney's talking about here. In Sonnet 47, it begins, What, have I thus betrayed my liberty? Can those black beams such burning marks engrave in my free side? Or am I born a slave, whose neck becomes such yoke of tyranny? Or want I sense to feel my misery, or sprite disdain of such disdain to have? Who for long faith, though daily help I crave, may get no alms but scorn of beggary. So he's saying, "Look, am I am I a you know a, am I free? If I am I completely a slave? I've lost all my liberty, and these black beams, those are again her black eyes, have made the burning marks. That's the the brand that a slave would have on his body." Uh, he says, "Am I am I just?" born a slave? Or was I made to be this way? Um, you know, how, why can't I, you know, even when I long or beg for help, I don't get any, I just get scorn. So again, at the line nine, we get a, a turn. Virtue awake. Beauty, but beauty is, I may, I must, I can, I will, I do, leave following that which it is gain to miss. Let her go. Soft, but here she comes. Go to, unkind, I love you not. Oh me, that eye doth make my heart give to my tongue the lie. So he's trying to, he's kind of bucking himself up here and says, look, virtue, awake. I'm not going to be carried away just because, yes, she's pretty. And that wonderful line 10, I may, I must, I can, I will, I do. Um... It's getting notice. Of course, I do is echoing the wedding vow, uh, which is kind of ironic. And then we get this kind of internal dialogue, you know, or this dialogue external and internal. Um, he says, "Soft, but here she comes." And then apparently he talks to her. Go to, unkind. I love you not. But that's not how he really feels. 
O me, that I does make my heart give to my tongue the lie. I can say that I don't love you, but my heart knows that I do. So we get the internal conflict that he has here. Again, it's a standard Petrarchan conceit of of love as uh, enslavement. Uh, But he's kind of energized it here with that internal dialogue. And you get the real sense here that you get in sonnets of that kind of emotional roller coaster. He he shifts one way and then shifts back the other, uh, back and forth. Now, in Sonnet 49, he develops an elaborate analogy or metaphor. I mean, he sets it up in the first line. I on my horse and love on me doth try our horsemanship. All right, so Sidney was a, was a famous horseman and soldier, uh, so he was you know famous for this. And so it says, the same way that I ride my horse... Love is riding me. I am, I'm love's horse, basically. It says, while by strange work I prove a horseman to my horse, a horse to love. Right, so he, he's in control of his horse, but love is in control of him. And now man's wrong it wrongs in me, poor beast, descry the reins wherewith my rider doth me tie are humbled thoughts. Which, which bits of reverence move. So now he's elaborating on this analogy. So the, 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 the reins that the, his writer love uses to control him are humbled thoughts. And the, the bit in the, the bridle uh, is, is reverence, curbed with fear, but with guilt boss above of hope. So the, you know, the, the bridle has these you know, gilded golden uh, decorations on it, and that's, that's the sense of hope that he has, which makes it seem fair to the eye. Is it, that's all just de- hope is just a decoration. It doesn't really, it's not really doing anything. It just makes it look pretty. It's not actually helping. The wand, or, or the whip, is will. Thou, fancy, saddle art. So the will is the whip that makes him go. His fancy is the saddle in which love rides, uh, girt fast by memory. So the girt that ties the saddle to him is memory that keeps it all together. While I spur my horse, he, love, spurs with sharp desire my heart. So the spurs are desire. He sits me fast, however I do stir, and now hath made me to his hand so right that I, in the manage myself, take delight. So it ends, again, with a, so often with a little twist, uh, that love is such a proficient rider that he kind of enjoys being ridden by love. The same way, you know, you feel like the, the, a horse is kind of proud of being uh, responsive to his master that's the way he feels. Love is so in control of me, and it does it so masterfully that I, I, I take delight in it. Um, so he's kind of a slave of love, but he likes it. Um, now, in the next uh, uh, sonnet, it starts um, uh, a conflict between virtue and love that we'll see developed in, in later sonnets. It says, A strife is grown between virtue and love, while each pretends that Stella must be his. Her eyes, her lips, her all, saith love, 
do this, since they wear his badge, most firmly prove. But virtue, thus that title doth disprove, that Stella, O oh dear name, that Stella is the vir- that virtuous soul, sure heir of heavenly bliss, not this fair outside, which our hearts doth move. So there's this debate going on between virtue uh, and love. Love says that Stella belongs to him. Look how pretty she is. And virtue says, no, she belongs to me. Look how virtuous she is. She she belongs with the angels in heaven. And therefore, though her beauty and her grace be loves indeed, in Stella's self he may by no pretense claim any manner place. Well, love, since this demure our suit doth stay, let virtue have that Stella's self, yet thus, that virtue but this that body grant to us. He says, okay, well, yes, it seems like uh, virtue has this great claim on her soul, and okay, we'll concede that virtue. You've got her soul. Me and love, we just want her body. All right, and so it's kind of a comic uh, twist ending there. Uh, there, um, But it starts up this idea, and we'll see this in some other sonnets the next time, about how virtue and love are at odds. Uh, the virtue, the higher morality, and love, the kind of the baser feelings, uh, are in conflict with between uh, in Astrophil's love for Stella. And you'll see next time several poems that talk about um, the, the conflict between love and desire. Uh, and notice those as you're looking at the poems for next time. Also, you'll see that there are uh, a couple of songs that are included in the, the readings for next time. And think about how those contribute to the sonnet sequence. What things is is Sidney able to do with a a song form that he was unable to do with a with a sonnet? We'll look at those those songs and think about the note that the uh, the sonnet sequence ends on. The last poem uh, we I've already mentioned last time that uh, sonnet sequences don't really resolve in a in a narratively satisfying way but think about why Sidney has picked the the final poem that he he has here as the right note to end this sonnet sequence all right um i think that'll be all for this session we'll be looking at the rest of Sidney's sonnets in and some of his songs in the next session if you have questions, the email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thank you so much for your attention. I will talk to you next time.